0: For the past few weeks, we've been paying attention to the things that have taken place in the last week of Jesus's life. Uh, Today, we're going to turn our attention and focus to the last few hours of Jesus's life. And we'll do that today and then next week as we see Jesus go from a time that he spent in the temple teaching and with his disciples to a last meal that he's going to share with them like we just had a few moments ago and read about a few moments ago. We've taught extensively on that in the past, so we're going to move over that Passage today and into what takes place right after that meal when Jesus goes with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus knows exactly what's taking place. This has become customary for him that he would go to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and after the Passover, he would spend time there. In fact, we heard earlier this morning as well as we read that this was his tradition each day of the Passover week that he would go out to the garden in the evening and he would spend time in prayer there. And so the night is going to be no different for Jesus as he celebrates Passover over with his disciples and then goes out, except this is going to be a moment that's going to bring darkness into his life and into the world, because one of his disciples will betray him. And so tonight what we're going to look at, or today what we're going to look at, is that two elements in this passage, Jesus being arrested and taken to trial, and then Peter denying Jesus, and what takes place in Peter's denial when Jesus is on trial. And so if you will, just read with me. As we see what God is using to accomplish our salvation, uh, Jesus has prayed with his disciples and has asked them to pray with him in the garden, but they keep falling asleep. Jesus has been in anguish praying and asking God, if there's any other way that this cup would pass from me, let there be that other path. But he submits to the will of God. And he says, but not my will, but yours be done. I'm here to do your will and to accomplish your purposes. And so Jesus has now prayed that. And as we get into Luke chapter 22, verse 47, here's what we find taking place in the life of Jesus. It says, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? And when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And so what we find happening here with Jesus... Earlier in the week, Judas had agreed to hand Jesus over to the Pharisees. The crowds in the temple courts had always presented a problem for the Pharisees and the religious leaders because they wanted to get rid of Jesus, but the crowds hung on his every word. And so as Jesus would proclaim truth and teach about the kingdom of God and the coming of that kingdom, the people were elated. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. Their Messiah had come. They really believed that. And so the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders and the scribes, they could never get to Jesus because they knew and they admitted as much that if we do something to Jesus with the crowds around, they'll turn on us and they'll kill us. But they want to get rid of Jesus. So now Judas has gone to them and he's betrayed Jesus. He said, I'll find a way to get Jesus for you. And he knows Jesus is going to spend time at the Mount of Olives. He does this every night. He goes there alone with his disciples. He knows that there's going to be a moment that he can hand Jesus over to them. So they're excited about that. But I want us to see what takes place in this night. There are three absurd things that happen in this scene. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want to give you these three thoughts that we see, just absurd acts that happen in the arrest of Jesus. The first is that Jesus is betrayed with a kiss. Right, like this is a sign of friendship. This is something that you do to someone that you hold in high esteem. That a disciple would come to his rabbi or his master, his teacher, and he would kiss him on the cheek. And yet Jesus sees Judas coming and he calls him out on it. He says, Judas, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Like we've been saying all along, Jesus is in control of all of the things that are happening in his last week of his life he's in control of all things all time but jesus is fully in control there's nothing that's taking place in this week that catches jesus off guard he had already predicted that one of the 12 would betray him he knew who that was going to be he knew when judas left the meal that he was going to get his his uh, companions to come in and to get jesus but jesus still went to the mount of olives He still went there, and when Judas shows up and walks toward Jesus, before he even kisses him, Jesus knows what he's going to do. Hey Judas, he identifies him. Are you going to betray the son of man? Like he knows that Judas is not there for a fun encounter, a friendly encounter. He says, you're here to betray me, and you're gonna do it with a kiss. And so this thing that should be full of love and respect is given as a sign of betrayal instead it's an ironic greeting for the occasion but it's purposeful right part of the purpose behind why Judas says hey the guy that you want to arrest is the one that I kiss uh, is because they don't really maybe they don't recognize who Jesus is they don't all know who Jesus is the, the temple guards the palace guards that are with him but and it's nighttime on the Mount of Olives it's dark so they want to make sure they arrest the right guy so Judas goes, I'll make it really clear to you, the one that I grab by the shoulders and kiss on the cheek, that's the one you arrest. And so it's ironic but it's purposeful. So that's the first absurd thing that we see that takes place in this is Jesus is betrayed with a kiss. The second absurd thing is that a disciple of Jesus cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Like the disciples even say when the crowd comes up you hear one of them say, "Should we attack with our swords?" But they don't even wait for Jesus to answer. One of them just lunges forward and cuts off a guy's ear. And you're like, how random, how weird, right? And Jesus in that moment goes, no, stop this. Uh, John's gospel tells us that it was Peter who did that because of course, right? Peter's just this guy who's impetuous. He always does things just acting out of his instincts. And so he steps forward and he cuts the guy's ear off. But Jesus reaches down, picks it up, And heals the man. He puts his ear back on. Isn't that amazing? Like we need plastic surgery and specialized technicians to do those kinds of things. Jesus just goes, here you go. By the way, as far as I know in scripture, this is also the only miracle that Jesus does that's not asked for and is not based in faith. The guy doesn't come to him and go, Jesus, would you do something about my situation? Jesus just takes care of the need. Even as he's being betrayed, Jesus is watching out for the good of other people around him. Even those who are there to arrest him and to take him. Jesus is putting an end to what could look like a rebellion. He goes, no, 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 stop this. Don't do that. If there's anything Rome is concerned about and that the Pharisees could use against Jesus to get him with Rome, it would be that he was leading an insurrection, In fact, they're going to try that take in the trial with Pilate later. He's leading a rebellion. The crowds come to him. He's trying to lead an uprising against you. And in this moment, Jesus is proving that is not the case. There's no rebellion going on here. When violence starts, Jesus stops it, he heals the man. And by the way, his best trooper, his best army soldier in this moment wants to kill a guy and he ends up just nicking his ear. Like no rebellion is coming out of this moment, right? You're going, Peter, really just put that away before you hurt yourself. And so Jesus in this moment takes and stops the situation. He even asks him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? He wants to defuse this. He goes, if you're gonna take me, there's going to be nothing that you can do when you stand me in front of Pilate that's going to say he was rebelling, there was an insurrection, he was leading violence, and there's opposition to Rome. Jesus is not going to go to the cross because of political reasons against Rome. So he stops any thought of that from being taking place. Right? Now, that moves us to the third absurd thing that happens. Jesus is arrested at night, and it's out of cowardice. Like He even says to them, Wasn't I with you guys in the temple gates, in the temple courts, every day this week? Wasn't I there? Why didn't you come arrest me then? What was it that stopped you from doing that? It's cowardice. So they come at night, and they're going to arrest Jesus, and they're going to take him to a trial in the house of the high priest. Now, here's what you need to know about that. In Jewish law, it's illegal to perform a trial at night. There's no way that you're supposed to do that. But the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, they're not going by what's right with the law. They've already determined the verdict against Jesus. Now they just need to find a reason to get him in front of Pilate and to Rome so that they can crucify him, so that they can kill him. The verdict's already been declared. They're not looking to do things by the book. They're not looking to follow the law. They're breaking the law to take Jesus to his death. And so Jesus asks him, have I been leading a rebellion that you have to come in the middle of the night and get me? But in this moment, Jesus gives himself over to the guards. And here's what he says to them. I love this. He says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. And here's what Jesus means by that. Peter tried to keep the darkness from reigning by attacking with a sword, but Jesus allowed it. This is the very reason he came. But here's what I love and appreciate about what Jesus says. If you look at it, he says, this is your hour. He doesn't go, hey, this is what the rest of eternity is going to be like. It's going to be darkness forever and ever. Jesus puts parameters around the darkness. He goes, yeah, darkness is coming, and this moment is dark, and it's gloomy, and what's about to happen is going to be terrible, and I'm going to be beaten and whipped and crucified, and I'm going to die. And the darkness that's coming is awful, but it's limited. This is your hour. You better take advantage of it, because Jesus knows that darkness can't prevail over light. He knows what's coming on Sunday, that He's going to be raised back to life, and the light of the world is going to step back in to His creation, and He's going to bring hope and life and peace to all of us. So He goes, "Yeah, darkness is coming, but it's limited. Here's your hour." When darkness reigns. And that's good news for us to hear as well. Because we go through moments of darkness in our life, right? Like you go through times where you feel attacked, where you feel like sin has taken place in your life, where Satan is coming against you. You know what it feels like to feel like you're in the middle of a struggle where darkness is reigning in your life, don't you? But the good news for us is that we need to take what Jesus says and apply it to our life. Darkness has parameters. And the darkness you're experiencing or the darkness that you face is not going to be forever and ever. There's a limit to it. Now, it might be that in your lifetime, that darkness doesn't come to an end. That the thing that you're experiencing that you would identify and go, this is the darkness that I feel like I'm walking through. It may not end in this life. But what Jesus wants us to know is that when we wake up in our eternal life, the darkness is over. His light will rule and reign for all of eternity. And we're invited to participate with him in his light. Right? So Jesus tells us, the darkness that you face, the darkness that I face, it's got parameters put around it because of what he's going to do. Because he's going to go to the cross. He gives himself over to the dark so that we can experience light. And that's good news for us. So those are the absurd things that we see happen around this period of time. And while we look forward with hope, the moment that Jesus and the disciples are in are filled with strife and Jesus is led away and the disciples all scatter. All the other gospel accounts tell us that they ran away. Peter's the only one that somewhat stays with Jesus or near Jesus. But even Peter is going to be in the middle of this darkness. And while he follows at a distance, while Jesus is taken to the courts of the high priest, Peter's going to follow at a distance, and he's going to go into the courtyard. But Jesus had told him earlier that night, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter, who, again, is always kind of abrupt and always says whatever's on his mind at the moment, just says, I will never deny you. In fact, I would go to prison or to death with you if that's what it takes. Well, now that's an option, because Jesus has been arrested. Prison and death are right in front of Peter, and we're going to see what happens. Peter, just like the others, scatters, but he kind of turns back around after he gets out of the trouble moment. He turns back around, and he sees them walking off, and he follows them at a distance to the court of the high priest. And here's where we pick up with Peter. Verse 54. Then seizing him, Jesus, they led him away. They took him into the house of the high priest, and Peter followed at a distance. And when some of them, uh, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else said to him, you're one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. So Jesus is taken to the house of the high priest and an illegitimate trial takes place. Under Jewish law, it's illegal to carry out this trial, like we said a few minutes ago. But while the trial is taking place, Peter's out in the courtyard and he's watching from a distance. He can see into the chambers where Jesus is on trial, but he's out in the courtyard area. There's a fire that's been built. He sits around and then all of a sudden, this little girl, this servant girl in the the high priest house says, hey, you are with him. And he goes, no, 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 that's not me, not me. A little while later, another guy, hey, this guy was with him too. And he goes, no, man, that's, that's not me. I was not with him. About an hour passes and another guy goes, well, he's a Galilean. I can p- hear it in his voice and the, the sound that he has and, and his tone. And, and he see, this guy's from Galilee. He's got to be with Jesus. And again, it's no, I'm not. The other gospels are not as kind as Luke is to Peter. They tell some of the other details that Peter starts swearing to these guys. Like he calls them curses. And he's just letting it fly, trying to prove, would somebody that talks like that be with Jesus? You got the wrong guy. But then as soon as he gets those last words out, I'm not with him, he hears a rooster crow. And Jesus, who's on trial, hears the rooster crow. And Luke says, Jesus turns from where he's on trial, and he looks back into the courtyard and he looks right at Peter. Can you imagine? And here's what's powerful about that. The Greek word that's used there doesn't indicate that Jesus just turned around and surveyed the landscape and saw all the crowds that were out there in the courtyard. It goes, he he looked at Peter. Like he locked eyes. As Peter betrayed him, Jesus sees him. And here's what's powerful about that to me, that Jesus is intentional in that moment. Some of us think that when we betray Jesus with our sin, when we fall into sinful ways, when we do things that would betray our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus, that God has these angry eyes that he turns on us. Have you ever felt like that? Oh my gosh! I fell into sin. God has to be looking down at me, angry and hateful towards me, and I know He's just waiting to sling a lightning bolt my direction. Anybody ever felt, felt that? I'm the only one, really. I've felt that. God must be so disappointed. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is looking at at Peter and he just wants him to know, Peter, I still see you. And what happens with Peter in that moment is when he sees Jesus, he just runs outside and he weeps bitterly, right? And in that moment, what I think we're supposed to get from this is that when Jesus sees us in our sin, we want the eyes of God to look at us. Can you imagine what it would be if God went, fine, turn my back on you then. I'm not going to look at you. I'm not going to pay attention to you anymore. What if God turned his back on us every time we sinned against him? But the good news of what Jesus was going to do on the cross was that he was going to make it possible that when we sin, God would still send his gaze toward us. Because listen to me, he doesn't see your sin and your brokenness. When you've accepted Christ into your life, Jesus takes on center stage in your life. And when God looks at you, he looks through the lens of his son before he sees you. What Jesus accomplished on our behalf was complete forgiveness of all of our sin, past, present, and future. Now that's not permission for us just to sin and do whatever the heck we want. But it is to say that his goodness is so powerful toward us. His mercy and his grace is so powerful toward us that when God turns his gaze on you, he sees his son and what he did on the cross to pay for your sin. So by the time he gets his eyes on you, all he sees is a forgiven person. (laughs) Jesus is not angry at Peter. But Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. Here's what I love about this. I think this is good for us. That when God does turn his gaze on us and we recognize that we're sinful, and then when he brings conviction to us about our sin, That it would cause us to not just go, oh my gosh, God's looking at me. He must be angry with me. But to say, Jesus, when you look at me, it makes me want to stop this behavior. Peter, in that moment, immediately runs from his rebellion and gets away from everybody. If they keep challenging me, I'll keep condemning him. So I'm going to get away from it. That's what God does when he looks at us. He goes, you're in the middle of some sinful stuff. I'm going to need you to run away from that. And if you need to go somewhere and you need to weep and be bitterly mournful about your sin, fine. But get out of the sin. That's what he's calling us to. Run away from your rebellion. Go weep and go mourn and be broken over your sin. But come back to me and know that my eyes are on you. I see you. In fact, the first thing that Jesus does, one of the first things Jesus does after his resurrection, is he goes and he finds Peter. And he has a moment with Peter that he restores the relationship. Like he goes and he finds him. Peter has thought, my ministry life is over. I rejected the Son of God. Not once, not twice, three times. He's never going to let me be part of the movement again. And what does Jesus do? He goes and he finds him and he restores him. Peter, come back. If you love me, come feed my sheep, take care of my people. Jesus doesn't condemn us when we sin. He looks at us to draw us back. It reminds me of a story that I heard this week of a little girl uh, who was told by her grandmother, Hey, I want you to go out into the garden and I want you to water the flowers for me. And the little girl got out there with the hose, and all of a sudden, the next thing she knew, she was making mud pies, and just playing in the dirt. Until the grandmother came out of the house and looked at her. And as soon as she made eye contact, the little girl was like, Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be watering the flowers. And the little girl goes, Grandma, can you go back into the house and not look at me anymore? Like sometimes that's what we want our response to be. God, can you just let me stay in my sin and not look at me anymore? I'm liking playing in the mud. And Jesus is going, no, I can't do that. My cross paid for your sin so that I can call you out of it. So that I can cleanse you so that you can be whole. So Peter is not the only person who denied Jesus in this story. We also have to deal for just a minute with Judas. What happened to him? Peter's denial caused him to run out and weep bitterly, but eventually he's restored. So with Judas, here's what we find in Matthew's gospel in chapter 27. It says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and he hanged himself. Now, Matthew tells us that Judas was remorseful over what happened to Jesus, but he's not repentant about it. I don't know what Judas's thought process was when he turned Jesus over to the chief priest. I don't know if he thought this was going to be something that was going to lead to an execution. But when he sees that Jesus is condemned to die, he goes back and he's remorseful. He gives the money back. He goes, this is, this is a sin for me. But what's the next thing that we see Judas do? He goes out in his sorrow and he hangs himself. So we see these two opposite ways of handling this. Judas isolates himself from community. He stays in his guilt and in his grief, and he goes and he takes his own life. Peter denies Jesus, and where do we find Peter the next time we see him? He's run back to the other disciples, and he's surrounded himself by community. And he waits for Jesus just like the rest of them do. Not knowing for sure if Jesus is going to come back to life or not. We're told in the gospels that none of the disciples were expecting it. Even though Jesus had told them over and over and over again, I'm going to die, I'm going to come back to life. They're not waiting for that on Easter Sunday morning. The women go to the tomb to prepare Jesus's body and anoint his body with oils and fragrances because they think he's gone. It's when they get there that they go, it's it's empty, and there's an angel telling us he's alive. Go back and tell the disciples and Peter he's alive. And even when they come and tell the disciples that, they go, you're crazy. We don't believe that. Peter and John have to run to the tomb themselves to see it with their own eyes. No one's expecting Jesus to come back, but Peter goes back to community. He surrounds himself with people who love him. And he waits. And I think that's what we need to hear today, too, and understand is that when you have sin in your life, when you've got something in your life where darkness has come in and made a mess of your life and the shadow over you is so oppressive that you do not isolate yourself and say, well, maybe I just need to end it all. God can't possibly be pleased with this. What we're meant to do is run to community. Community. Run to our faith family. Run to your life group. This is what we do for one another. We bring healing and hope and we speak peace. And we remind you who Jesus is and what his victory in the cross has accomplished for you and me. When we have sin in our life, instead of isolating ourselves and going, man, I don't want anybody to know about this. The best thing we can do is come into the light and confess our sin and mourn over it And weep over it and let God deal with us. And then we need to move on because Jesus has set us free. Your sin does not hold you captive for all of eternity. The cross made it possible that darkness would only reign for an hour. There's parameters around what God allows to happen. In your life. And so I'm going to ask MK to come back up this morning and we're going to sing again today. But this idea for us of what do we need to do when we find ourselves in a position like Peter that we've denied Jesus, that we've sinned against Jesus. Here's here's something powerful about Peter. The next time we see him in the book of Acts, he's completely different. Remember Peter saying, Jesus, I would go to prison for you and even die for you. But when that became a reality, Peter ran away and he stayed at a distance. He wasn't going to put himself in that situation. Once Jesus comes back to life and Peter receives the restoration that Jesus brings for his sin, Peter's a changed man. And when we see him in Acts, he's boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. He goes to prison for Jesus. He's beaten and whipped multiple times for Jesus. Peter dies for Jesus. He's changed because of the power of salvation and what Jesus does on the cross. That's what redemption does for us. That's what forgiveness does for us. And if you've not experienced that forgiveness, and if you struggle in the weight of what you know is to be sin against God, and either you've never accepted Jesus as your savior or as a Christian, you've been immature in the way you've handled it and you've backed away from community and you've separated yourself from people. You're okay in a room like this, but you're not gonna go into a small group where you're able to confess your sin and deal with some things and let the body of believers come around you and pray for you and speak truth into your life. The man, I wanna challenge you today. Number one, get things right in your relationship with Jesus Christ. His death on the cross is powerful for you. And then number two, get into community where you can talk about things and where you can find help and healing and hope. Because that's where Jesus puts us. He puts us in a family and he says, I want you to be surrounded by people who are gonna love you no matter what and who are gonna walk through your life no matter what. As the body of Christ, we are the expression of Jesus in a lot of ways to our faith family, to our brothers and sisters. And we feel his presence with us personally, but in community, we also find where there's just powerful communion with one another. That we're able to say, I want to know what it looks like to live in light so that the hour of darkness passes in my life and that I can be set free. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you were challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.